Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is not salvation. Salvation takes place the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross. At the instant of salvation, you have an eternal relationship with God that can never be lost. However, that ongoing fellowship which we enjoy as believers, can be broken, just as the fellowship of a child with the parents can be broken, whenever we disobey God, and that disobedience is called sin. No matter what the sin is, it's been paid for by Christ on the cross, so on that basis we have forgiveness. But the Scripture says that we are to identify those sins to God the Father. It's called confession. It simply means to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father. The instant we do so, we are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness, even those sins we don't remember, the ones we forgot, the ones we didn't know were sins. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to focus, concentrate on the study of the Word this morning. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Father, as we sing this hymn, O God, our help in ages past, we are reminded that you are an infinite God, an omnipotent God, a God who created all things. You are the creator who is totally, absolutely distinct, categorically different from the creation. You have been able to create all things in the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are the God who is in control of human history, and therefore, whatever circumstances we face, whatever situations we encounter, whatever hardships we uh, have to deal with on a day-to-day life, day-to-day basis in our personal life, we know that you have been aware of these things from eternity past, and in your word you promised uh, that we would be able to face and surmount any situation, any difficulty, uh, as long as we follow your word and apply the principles of your word. Father, we thank you that we have you to rely on, that you are our eternal hope, which means our confident expectation. We know that uh, all things will work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to uh, your eternal purpose. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation, uh, 
We face uncertain times. We have had problems in the economy that appear to be uh, behind us, but any terrorist action today could could change that. We have still have serious economic issues that this country faces. We have problems in uh, with terrorism, problems facing the military in the Middle East, in Iraq, and Afghanistan, many other hot spots. We have enemies who seek to destroy this nation, and with that, destroy the freedom that Christianity enjoys, the freedom to support Israel, the freedom to take the gospel throughout the world. Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve this nation, to protect us, to give us these opportunities to take the word, to take the gospel throughout the world. Father, we also remember this time Jim Myers as he's down in Brazil, closing out a two-week period of ministry there. We pray that that was a profitable time, that he can return to Kiev safely. We know that when he returns, there are various challenges he will face due to personnel changes, and we pray that you would provide the right people that he needs both in terms of office staff plus uh, in terms of long-term, a long-term replacement for Mark Musser. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as a body of believers, that we might not lose sight of the fact that our highest priority is learning your word and applying it on a daily basis. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, we will be challenged by the things we study, that we would be willing to take the steps necessary to put these into practical application through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We began this study some two weeks ago. This is the longest section of 1 Corinthians, one of the long, long, longest chapters dealing with the subject of resurrection and the centrality of the resurrection of Christ to the Christian life, that this isn't just some sort of secondary idea that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but that this is foundational, it is central to everything that we believe in relationship to the gospel. Paul's argument here is that if Jesus did not rise bodily, physically from the grave, conquering death, then the claims of the gospel are false. There, we, then we have no hope. There is no precedent for, re, for resurrection, that we have no future. There is no hope. And we might as well cave into the pagan philosophies around us. But we realize that Christianity does teach the resurrection, that it's not just some ephemeral, uh, idealistic, mystical thing that happened in the minds of the disciples, but it had evidence, which we will look at in coming weeks. Now, Paul begins this chapter in the New King James. It translates it, moreover, brethren. A more accurate translation is in the New American Standard, which translates it, now I make known to you. And as we have seen in our uh, exegesis of the beginning, of this section, when Paul says now, he starts off with what's called a uh, transitional conjunction here, which is in the Greek, it's the particle de, de, and this indicates now, not in the sense of time, but now in, in the sense of logical development. And he is developing a new subject or shifting transitioning to a new topic. 
And he said, Now I make known to you, brethren. Actually, this is the Greek verb, norizo, G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. And although it is in the present tense, it's a present active indicative, and even though it's in the present tense, it is what what is known as a historic present. Paul is not talking about, I am now presently making known the gospel to you. The Corinthians were already saved. That's obvious from a number of things we've studied already in the epistle. It's also obvious from the next word here, the noun, the plural vocative of Adelphos, brethren, which is a technical term for other believers, for other members of the royal family of God. So he, they've already known the gospel. They have already learned the gospel. So this is called a, an historic present. And a historic present means that the writer uses a present tense verb in order to describe an event that previously took, previously took place as though it were happening in the present in order to dramatize or emphasize the significance of that event. So the narrator is describing a past event as if it is playing before his eyes in the present. One evidence that this should be translated this way is that all of the other verbs in this verse are in the past tense, that this is what I preach to you, which is an aorist middle indicative. This is what you received, which is an aorist active indicative. This is uh, what you in which this is the gospel in which you also stand, which is a perfect active indicative. So we have a reference to a historical event. He says, this I made known to you, and that's you is a second person plural. Now, that's important to pay attention to this. He uses the second person plural many times in the epistle, and it's important in a matter of exegesis. It's difficult sometimes to discern, but many times when he uses that plural pronoun, he's talking to the whole group, but he's also emphasizing... He's emphasizing individual application within the group. Now, the reason I'm making this point is he's going to use this plural pronoun in this section dealing with something related to the whole group, and he's not so much dealing with personal application. It is a a corporate event that he's referring to. I'll make that clear in just a minute. But he says, I made this known to you. And that is what's called the dative of advantage. I told this to you, and it is for your advantage. Now, he says, I made known to you, brethren. Brethren refers to believers. And even though Paul has called them carnal Corinthians, even though he has just castigated them again and again in this epistle for their immoral behavior, for their divisive behavior, for their arrogance, uh, they are nevertheless fellow believers. They are often out of fellowship. Their lifestyle in the church and their personal lives are characterized by their sin nature. That's what we mean by a carnal, a carnal Christian. They've been overrun by arrogance, but nevertheless, they're still believers. They're still heirs of God. They're still members of the royal family of God. And so he still addresses them as brethren, even though they have rejected his authority, they've challenged his authority, they've questioned what he's taught, 
and there's been such a uh, 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 inroad of antagonism towards Paul in the Corinthian congregation that they have divided over him. And this is one reason that they have written a number of these questions, and he has to deal with this whole issue of his authority and what he taught them because they they are uh, rejecting it. So it says, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel. And this is what we spent time on the last two weeks was trying to understand the gospel. And we did this by looking at these two words that are used here. The accusative case noun uh, describing what he made known is simply the word euangelion. E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism. This U here changes to a V as it comes over into... Uh, I think it changed to V as it went from Greek to Latin, and it comes over to us as evangelism. And the noun itself refers to the gospel or the good news, and the verb, which is euangelizo, E-U-A-N-G, should be an E-L-I-Z-O, means to proclaim the gospel, to teach the gospel. It may mean to explain the gospel, but it has the idea of some way communicating the gospel to his hearers. So Paul says, now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, that is the good news, which I proclaimed to you. I don't like to use the word preaching. Preaching in an American context implies a certain type of oral discourse. It's a rhetorical style. The Bible doesn't use it that way. Preaching isn't some sort of homiletical device. It has to do with the content, and it has to do with simply making something known or announcing something. So the gospel was announced. Now, the question we asked and addressed the last few weeks is, what is the gospel? And this is so important to understand. What is the gospel? And this is a starting point, as we'll see in this lesson, the starting point for understanding the Christian life is to understand the gospel. You have to think about it and hear it again and again and again in your Christian life. And maybe after you've heard the gospel 20 or 30 times, you will really understand it. Now, I'm not talking about understanding it enough to believe it for salvation, for justification, for phase one salvation. The gospel is so simple that a three-year-old child, if he's positive, can understand the gospel and put faith alone in Christ alone and have and be justified by that faith instantly and have eternal salvation and a secure destiny in heaven. The gospel, as we have seen from our studies, as we went through the, the uh, went through Acts, the the, uh, the book of Acts, looking at the use of this verb in various contexts, where the apostles were proclaiming and announcing the gospel, we saw that the gospel is relatively simple. There are different things that you 
that are present in different gospel uh, presentations, but the core message is that Jesus Christ saves from the eternal penalty of sin, and if you put your faith alone in him, if you trust in him, if you rely in him exclusively, then you have eternal salvation. That salvation is not based on what we do. It's not based on being aligned with the right group, being associated with the right denomination. It's not based on participation in some sort of ritual. It's not based on impressing God with how good we are or how good we're going to be or the sincerity of even our faith. It is simply trusting in Christ. It just takes a mustard seed of faith, and a mustard seed is is one of the tiniest seeds on earth. It just takes a small amount of trust in Jesus Christ, and in one instant, in one moment of time, in a nanosecond, if a person's faith is in Christ alone as the only object of their faith, that they realize they're saved only because of what Jesus did, that, that anything else is, is superfluous, nothing else matters, then they are saved. That that instant, God imputes to them the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means God's perfect righteousness is credited to their account. It's as if you have a negative balance of $10 million in your account, which is analogous to sin. We're all sinners. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. No matter how good you are, the bottom line is you've got a $10 million deficit in your uh, moral bank account. And you can never make that up. There aren't enough good deeds in the world to ever get you even to the point of having a positive balance. And yet, the riches of Jesus Christ's righteousness are put in that account the instant you put faith alone in Christ alone. It's not because you've never sinned. It has nothing to do with that. That You always have Christians come along with this extremely trivial statement that you've probably heard that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. No, it's not as if you'd never sinned. That would be changing you. That would be an infused righteousness. That's Roman Catholicism. It's not an infused righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness. It is something that is credited to your account, so you're still a lousy, rotten, corrupt sinner, obnoxious before God, except that obnoxiousness, that corruption, is now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the corruption that's still there because you still have a sin nature. What he's looking at is the righteousness of Christ that's in that account, and on that basis he declares us to be just, to be righteous. He doesn't change us. He doesn't make us righteous. You're still a dirty, rotten, lousy sinner. You haven't been made righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account so that when God the Father looks upon that imputation of righteousness, He declares, as a judge declares at the bench in a courtroom, he declares you to be just or righteous. And it has nothing to do with who you are or what you have done. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And understanding that is to begin to understand grace. Now, the gospel can be presented as simply as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16.31. That's all Paul said to the Philippian jailer, which is where we concluded last last time. It can be as simple as that, 
or it can be much more profound, depending on the person that you are talking with, depending on the uh, circumstances, depending on how much garbage is in their soul, depending on how long it has been since they have had any, any kind of understanding of biblical truth. Some people have been prepared. They've talked to many different people, and, and when you get finally get to them and give them the gospel, they're ready. And we saw studies last time of that case. The Jews, they were saved in uh, Jews and Gentiles that were saved in Acts were those that had been prepared because of their study of the Old Testament. We talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was reading Isaiah 53. And he was a proselyte to Judaism. He knew the Old Testament, knew the promises and prophecies about the Messiah, so he was ready. And Cornelius, as a Gentile, was also ready. And then there were Jews in some of the various synagogues where Paul went who were ready. They were positive. And when they heard the gospel... There, there needed to be, there did not need to be a detailed explanation. Paul went about after he was saved explaining that Jesus was, Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Savior to Israel. But then there were unprepared Gentiles, and we saw in that study that Paul had to approach them in a slightly different manner. They didn't know who God was. If you're going to explain the gospel, the gospel is good news that you're saved from God's judgment. But who is God? If your concept of God is is an impersonal, abstract force out there in the universe somewhere that really doesn't interact with human beings, then when you hear the biblical gospel, if that is the content you're loading into the word God, you're going to have a very you're not going to hear what as an unbeliever, you won't hear what the other person, what the Christian is saying to you. You won't properly understand it because you've got a false understanding of God. So we saw that in both Acts Acts 13 and in Acts 17, when Paul had to deal with, with purely pagan Gentiles with no frame of reference whatsoever with the Old Testament, that he had to spend some time explaining who God was, and he didn't even get to the cross for a while. And in Acts 17, he never did get to the cross because they rejected the notion that God was the creator of the, the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And so we've seen that in our study of, of the first part of Genesis, that creation isn't some abstract, secondary, almost irrelevant doctrine, that it's important that if people don't have a correct understanding of God, they're not going to get a really clear, correct understanding of Jesus. And if they don't get it at salvation, because we all know in reality some people really don't, but they do trust Christ as their Savior and they are saved, they better get that straightened out afterwards. Otherwise, they're sitting in a post-salvation Christian life with a screwed-up view of God, and that is one of the reasons why we have so much distortion in so many different Christian churches today is because they really haven't worked out the implications of a God who is the distinct creator of all things, and they still sort of have Buddhist New Age ideas, fatalistic ideas of God that they that they rely on in their Christian life, and then they wonder why doctrine doesn't work. And when doctrine doesn't work, it's for a couple of reasons. One reason it doesn't work is the doctrine you think is there isn't. You didn't understand it correctly, and you're relying on some sort of false doctrine. And it amazes me sometimes how many Christians utilize God in a fatalistic manner. 
And I'm not talking about hyper-Calvinists. I'm talking about from, from Arminians to those who have a moderate view uh, in terms of the role of of human volition and responsibility. Something happens in life, and it just, it just well, it's just God's will. And they're using it in an almost fatalistic manner to justify whatever happens in life rather than think about the fact that, no, there is real human responsibility and accountability in decision-making. There's real contingency in human history and real contingency in your life and my life that is not dependent on some fatalistic force or God um, making everything happen according to uh, some sort of plan that doesn't allow for contingency, that doesn't allow for volition or responsibility. And it is all, when you utilize God's will in that sense, you're also absolving everyone around you of responsibility for their inordinate acts. And we have to realize that, that we can't do that that there is responsibility as part of the divine institution, number one, and people are to be held accountable for their actions. And we just can't let people, uh, Christians, who get involved in wrong things and wrong actions and wrong belief systems and who validate um, uh, wrong ways of doing things. Remember, a wrong thing done, I mean, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong whether it has to do with the methodology for evangelism or whether it has to do with the methodology for church growth or whatever the situation is, if a church is involved in doing a right thing in a wrong way and people don't hold them accountable for that, that's part of the function of a congregational government, is to hold leadership accountable for biblical methodology. If they don't do it, then... You can't go continue to validate. You can't just dismiss it as, well, that must be God's will. It may be God's permissive will, but if you continue to validate irresponsibility and uh, sinful behavior, unethical behavior, then eventually there will be uh, divine discipline, the law of uh, reaping what is being sown. So the gospel has implications And that's what Paul is beginning to get to in these first two verses is that there are real implications to the gospel. And the starting point is that you learn grace. Now, you don't understand all the details, facets, ramifications of the gospel when you're first saved. Maybe you're like me. You were saved when you were a child. I was six years old when I was saved. I certainly didn't understand justification by faith alone. I'm not sure I really understood what the Trinity was. You don't have to understand or believe all of those things to be saved. The sort of irreducible minimum in salvation is you recognize that you're lost, you're under condemnation in some sense, and the only way out, the only solution is Jesus Christ. But in your post-salvation spiritual life, as you're growing, as you're advancing in the spiritual life, you have to understand what grace is. Because grace is the foundation for understanding concepts such as forgiveness, love, uh, the ongoing relationship of God with a believer who is in carnality, like the Corinthian believers are in carnality. If you don't understand grace, which comes from understanding the gospel and what Christ did on the cross, then you're never going to be able to understand these other concepts in the Christian life. So Paul again and again and again goes back to the essence of the gospel and what's included in the gospel in order to unpack 
these various emphases on grace. So he says, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaimed to you, which also you received. Now, I want to stop here and look at the historical event here. We have to understand the next two phrases, which at first glance seem to suggest something different from what they teach. When you look at that first, those first two relative clauses there, which I preach to you is the first relative clause, the which there is the uh, neuter accusative singular referring back to the gospel, the gospel I preach to you, the gospel also you received, uh, in which, or that is the gospel in which, the gospel in the gospel also you stand. What does that mean? And when you look at that, and I look at that, the first response is when he says, which also you receive, we tend to take that as, well, they accepted the, they accepted the gospel, they trusted Christ, and they were saved. Which also you stand. Well, we stand in the grace of God. We stand positionally in Christ. So our first blush interpretation of those two phrases has to do with personal salvation and positional truth. Well, if that's how we understand it, we're wrong, because that's not how this is being used. So we have to stop and think a little bit about what is going on here. So to do that, we have to go back and do one more brief study of what happened in Acts 18. Acts 18 records what happened when Paul first took the gospel to Corinth. Last time we did the last two times, a little bit of a brief survey through Acts, looking at how, uh, looking at places where that verb euangelizo was used and how that related to the proclamation of the gospel in order to understand what the gospel was and what the response was. We saw that the gospel was believing in Christ or trusting in Christ alone, that Christ saves, and that the response is to believe. We'll see that confirmed in the description of Paul's ministry in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, that is after his uh, dialogue and disputation with the philosophers in uh, Athens, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans, after that, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. If you were to look at a map, Corinth is almost due west of Athens, just a little bit south of due west, and not very far, less than a day's journey. And he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Achilla, born in Pontus. Now, Pontus is a region over in what is now modern Turkey or Asia Minor. Found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So what we learn about Aquila and Priscilla is that they are Jews who were born in the Diaspora. They are from Pontus. We can assume that perhaps that Priscilla is also from Pontus. We're not sure. It doesn't actually state. That they've traveled around a bit. They have been to Rome, and they were living in Rome when uh, Claudius uh, put forth a decree, an anti-Semitic decree, demanding that all Jews uh, leave Rome. So they left Rome, and they came to Corinth. 
And Paul came to them, and so because he was of the same trade, verse 3, they were tent makers. Now, this isn't talking so much about the fact that they sat down and they pulled out a needle and thread and bought some some leather or cloth or whatever they made the tents from and built a tent. This was a much more commercial operation than that. They hired laborers who did that, and they were responsible as the, the owners of the company to get the contracts from the various uh, caravans that needed their tents repaired and that needed their tents made. So there's more to the, He's not pictured here as simply a common as simply the, the common laborer who's sewing the tents together. He and Aquila and Priscilla have this business together, and it was quite a going concern. So verse 3 we read, Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers, and that was how he supported himself. And there are many pastors who have to, who pastor small churches, who have to support themselves, and we use this same phrase, they've got a tent-making operation. That's just become the idiom. I have a good friend of mine who is pastor of Spokane Bible Church, Todd Kennedy. Todd got his uh, doctorate in veterinary medicine before he went to seminary back in the late 60s, and he supplements his income as a pastor, and it's quite a distraction for for him, but he has a has a small veterinary medicine business. Other pastors take different jobs. Some do sales. Some try to supplement their income through some sort of multi-marketing thing. Uh, some are involved as school teachers. There are many different jobs that pastors hold at times simply to uh, supplement the income uh, in, in a local church. And unfortunately, they are, that's a distraction. And this is what we see here, that Paul is, has his attention divided because he's having to work in the tent-making business, a certain amount of time. But this was designed as a temporary stage, as we'll see. In verse 4, we're told that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is an interesting methodology. Paul would follow the principle to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he went to the synagogue, and during the the operation of the synagogue on a Sabbath morning, which would be our Saturday morning, as they met, there would be a time in the meeting where there would be a, a dialogue, where there would be a time for question and answer, and there would be a time for different men in the congregation of the, of the synagogue to stand up and explain or teach some different elements from the Old Testament. And so Paul would uh, be called upon because... Perhaps he had a reputation. Perhaps uh, it was known that he had gone to the school of Gamaliel and in Jerusalem, and so he and as a, as a visitor, as someone who had tra- been traveling and someone who was from Jerusalem, he would be asked to comment. And so we're told that he got up and he began to reason in the synagogue. And this word for reasoning is the word from which we get our English word dialogue. So it's not a monologue, which is what we're used to in in uh, preaching or teaching in a local church, which is also pretty st- was standard afterwards, but this was in a different context. So he has a dialogue here, and this is the uh, Greek verb dialegomai, 
Remember you see this O-M-A-I ending that tells you that in the, in the dictionary form, it's a middle, middle form, but it has an active meaning. So it's an imperfect, active, because it's a deponent verb, indicative. So it's treated as an active verb. The imperfect tense is progressive, and this indicates ongoing action in past time. So this isn't something that happened on one Sabbath. This is something that is pictured as happening Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath over a period of time, probably not more than four or five weeks, but this is a progressive thing that was going on uh, for a while. It is... The basic meaning of the, of the verb is to converse, to discuss, to argue, to inform or instruct in a way that may also include an exchange of views or questions and answers. Now, this is, um, gives Paul an opportunity to present the case for Christ and for those there say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean the Messiah's come? How do you know he's the Messiah? And then he could go through the evidence from the Old Testament, and he could explain the passages. So there would be a, a dialogue, a time for question and answer, a time for him to to uh, not just stand up and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, or Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he's come. He wasn't simply making an announcement and then walking out the door, but he was answering their questions. He was dialoguing. There was a give and take and he reasoned, giving the evidence from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So this is his methodology, and as a result of that, he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, the Greeks here are not the pagan Greeks outside of the synagogue. These are Gentile uh, because of the context, is this is what was going on in the synagogue. These would be Greek proselytes who had been attending the synagogue and who had some Old Testament background. And the result is that some Jews and some Greeks were persuaded, and this is the verb uh, pytho, and they that means they came to understand the truth of Paul's claims. Then in verse 5 we're told that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. See, there's where we get the content. What, what, what is the focus of his reasoning in the synagogue? That Jesus is the Messiah. But we're told that when Silas and Timothy, who were part of his traveling entourage, these were young men he was training in the ministry. When Silas and Timothy had come, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Once um, Silas and, and Timothy showed up, at that point they began to help and take over the the function of the the business aspect of the tent making. And so Paul was able to devote himself more fully to the task of of the word. In fact, in verse 5, which I just quoted, where it says, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. That is a bad translation. The Greek verb there is soon echo. 
S-U-N-E-C-H-O. Soon echo. And it means to be wholly absorbed or focused on a task. And it should be translated, uh, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed in the task by the Holy Spirit. That means that Paul quit working aside and he devoted himself exclusively to teaching, teaching the Word. And as a result of that, he hits opposition, antagonism, and they uh, he has to depart from the synagogue. Verse 7, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, who is probably, that's a Latin name, so he's probably a Gentile, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul just goes next door and sets up, sets up a school there. Then Crispus, verse 8, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. Now, this gives us the response. Remember, what I've done is I've gone through the, these Acts passages to show what the content of the gospel was and what the response was. The content is that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the Messiah, and that entails all of the Old Testament teaching about a promised Savior. And then the response is faith. Then Crispus the leader of the synagogue believed on the Lord. Now, what was his response? He believed. This is an aorist, active indicative of the verb pistuo. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. And pistuo means to trust, to rely on, to believe. And the concept of belief is the idea that you are trusting in a proposition. problem that we have is we, sometimes you see people, and this is part of this context, some people say, well, there's a difference between those who believe in Jesus and those who believe that Jesus. No, there's not. Etymologically, there's no distinction. You know, some people want to say, well, people who believe in Jesus are trusting in him, but other people are just believing some, some historical principle. But... The concept or the phraseology, believe that Jesus, is the Greek, the use of the Greek preposition eis, E-I-S. And this is the way the Gospel of John presents it. Again and again and again, whenever you read in the Gospel of John to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's using this preposition eis, not the construction we have here, which is a, which is a dative, uh, to, to believe in the Lord. See, Crispus believed in the Lord. And there's no difference. Uh, semantically, the phrases are equivalent, whether you believe in Jesus or believe that Jesus, because the meaning of faith, is the object of faith, is always in a proposition. The object of faith can always be exp- expressed in a propositional statement. Now, what's a proposition? A proposition is like a declarative sentence. It's any sentence that can be demonstrated to be true or false. A question is not a proposition. What's the weather like outside? That's not a proposition. It's raining outside. See, that's a proposition. It's either true or it's false. It's snowing outside. Well, that's see, it's either true or it's false. The sun is shining outside. It's either true or false. So you can verify it or falsify it. That's what makes something a proposition. And the proposition that we believe is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died on the cross, Isaiah 53, 
in order to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you believe that, that that proposition is true, then you have salvation. See, most people think, well, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But that's not true. Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus, and Judas wasn't saved. Now, I understand there's been some discussion as to whether or not Judas might have been saved. But the evidence from the Scripture is that Judas was not saved. He was called the son of perdition. And the term there describing perdition is indicating that he is lost. The word, the Greek verb for perdition is related to the noun apolumi, which is the word for those who are perishing in John 3.16. When you have a phrase, son of perdition, that is a descriptive title indicating that the person who is being described is characterized by that genitival object. The perdition uh, describes him. He's a lost one. He was, he was also indwelt by Satan. And the verb that is used there, to say that Satan entered into him in John 13 is the Greek verb ace erkomai. And ace erkomai means to enter into or to go into someone. It has as a prefix the Greek preposition ace plus the basic word for to come, erkomai. And ace means into, so ace erkomai means to come into, and this is the technical verb that is used in almost, not every, because there's a couple of synonyms that are also used, such as echodaimonion, meaning to have a demon, but this is the technical term for demon possession, that a demon has entered into the body of someone. So if you get to a word like ace erkamai, that's a technical word used of demon possession, and you find that in a context like John 13, where it says Satan entered into uh, Judas, then if you don't take Ace Erkamai in the same way you do in every other demon possession narrative, then you've absolutely blown every principle of exegesis that there can be. You have to be consistent. And so Ace Erkamai indicates, indicates that Judas was demon-possessed. He was not saved. Well, see, Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus. But Judas isn't going to be in heaven. He's never pictured as having trusted Christ as his Savior. And one of the things that absolutely galls me is the number of Christians who are so naive and so stupid about God's plan that they want to make everybody saved. They want to believe somehow, some way, somebody, whoever it might be, whoever their favorite person is at the time, they might have heard the gospel when they were saved, and they might be saved. Well, that's true. That's always true. Hitler might have been saved. Maybe somebody got in the gospel when he's two years old and he got saved. Probably not. There's no evidence to that. Same thing with Stalin. Somebody said, well, he could have been saved. Yeah, he could have been. But there's no evidence there. You know, it's amazing how many people want to jump, despite all evidence, into some sort of rationalized optimism that somebody might have been saved. Sure, somebody could have gotten to to Judas 
with the truth after he was left, but he dies under guilt. That's why he commits suicide. If somebody had gotten to him with the gospel, he would have realized his guilt was taken care of. Just absurd. But it shows that people can't reason. They can't think. They don't know how to reason or think biblically. They're just out there uh, rationalizing on the basis of their own arrogant ignorance of doctrine. But the point I'm making here is that salvation isn't based on a relationship. How do you have a relationship with Jesus? You trust in him first. How do you get to know Jesus personally? How do you have a one-on-one relationship with him? Only through the pages of Scripture. You can't understand the first thing about Jesus if you don't read the text. And the text is propositional. See, there's always something standing between you and the Lord. And that's the Word, the written Word of God, who tells you who Jesus You don't know a thing about Jesus if you don't know the Bible. You don't know a thing about Jesus if you don't understand the propositions. Your faith is always directed towards a proposition. Faith rest drill is doing what? Basic definition, mixing your faith with what? The promises of God. What are the promises of God? They're propositions in Scripture. See, everything in your relationship with God is mediated through written documentation. Now, those of you who come on on Wednesday night, we've gotten through the Noahic flood, and we're down to the Noahic covenant. And we're starting to study covenants a little bit on Wednesday night. And the essence of a covenant is it's a legal document. The profound thing, observation, is that no other god or goddess in any other religion in all of human history has a god who enters into a legal contract with his creatures. Buddha doesn't. The Hindu gods don't. Baal didn't in the Old Testament. But only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob defines who he is and what his obligations and promises are to man through a legal contract that binds him unconditionally to its fulfillment. And that's what undergirds everything in the Old and New Testament is this concept of a written contract. And another word for that is a testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Same word, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Every single thing that we have in our relationship to God is ultimately grounded in a written legal document. And what does that mean? They're propositions. See, we live in an age when somebody says you've got to believe in Jesus. Oh, it's so personal. You, you make it propositional, it's just it's impersonal. No, it's not. It's sound. If you don't have those propositions there to guarantee it based on covenant, there is no guarantee. But because we have that guarantee, then we can have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it comes after the propositional understanding. And it's based on that. That's the only way you know God and the only way you can have a relationship with God. So Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household, that's his family. That doesn't mean that he believed for them. See, this was an error that came up. You see it in the Middle Ages when some missionary would go to Sweden or go to the Vikings or go to some other pagan group, 
and convince the chieftain of the local tribe to trust in Christ, and he would, and then he would make everybody else do that. That's what happened in Kiev. The prince of Kiev at the time uh, investigated Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, trying to decide what he, what their religion would be, and he decided they would be Christian. So he was baptized, and then he took everybody else that was living in Kiev at the time, marched them all down the river, down to the Dnieper River, and had them all forced baptized. Now we're all Christians. No, they weren't, because nobody else had believed. But that's what what, Chris, what Acts 18.8 is saying, is that not only did Crispus trust in the Lord, but all of his household put their faith alone in Christ alone as well. And not only Crispus, but many of the Corinthians, and these would be the pagan Gentiles in Corinth, not the Gentiles that had been proselytized into the synagogue, but these would be the non-proselytized, the just the pure old pagan Gentile Corinthians. When they heard, they were doing what? What's the response to the gospel? They were believing, and they were being baptized. Now, baptism isn't what you do to be saved. It was simply an external testimony a sign of what happened in the spiritual realm. It's a picture of the individual believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. They were believing, and this is the uh, verb, or the imperfect uh, active indicative, again, of pistuo. And the imperfect tense indicates that this was an ongoing process. So over this period of time, uh, each day, there were other Corinthians who put their faith alone in Christ alone. It isn't saying that the individual Corinthian believe, was believing. It's not emphasizing the ongoing action of the individual believer, uh, but is act, talking about the fact that this act of believing, this con, there were conversions every every other day or every day and so. And then in the English, it looks like they were doing two things. They were believing and being baptized. But the baptism is a participle. It's not a finite verb. So it's a secondary action that is not related to salvation at all. So grammar clearly shows that baptism wasn't part of the response relative to salvation. It was simply a secondary event that was a sign, an external sign of something that had gone on in salvation. So what we see here is this is how they received the gospel. It's not talking about personal reception in terms of faith alone in Christ alone. It is talking about the fact that historically, see, that's why we go back to that historic present. I made known to you the gospel, which in which you received, okay, which you, plural, received as a group. What they heard, what they accepted when Paul was there in, in Corinth in 55, 56, A.D., was what they accepted. It was the truth. It was the orthodox gospel. They received that. They accepted it. It's not talking about the fact that individually they received in the sense of John John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. There, the reception of the gospel is individual in terms of, uh, as a synonym of faith alone and Christ alone. But here it's talking about the, the historical event that this was that they, that they had an orthodox statement that they that they had accepted as a body, and there's a danger of them for, 
losing the implication of that. Now, there is a group in the New Testament that did lose the implication of the gospel and did lose the gospel and departed from what they had received, and that is, that's the Galatians. So turn with me over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is after 2 Corinthians and before Ephesians. Now, we see almost identical terminology to 1 Corinthians 15.1 in Galatians 1.11. But before we get to 1.11, let's pick up the context in verse 6. Paul has already introduced the epistle in the first four, five verses, and then he just slaps him in the face. He doesn't go through a period. Doesn't, excuse me. Doesn't go through a period, which is typical in most of the letters where he praises the reader, talks about how he's praying for them, how thankful he is for their response to the gospel, and all the the, the fruit that is born in their life. He just jumps in their face. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So they are turning from the gospel. This is the Greek verb meta, tithemi, in the present uh, middle. It's a dynamic middle, present middle indicative, that they are uh, turning away. They are deserting. He uses a very harsh, very picturesque term that you're running out on the gospel. I marvel that you are running out on the gospel so soon, are running out so soon from him who called you, that is, you're deserting God. When you leave the gospel, you desert God. From him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And the Greek Greek adjective here is heteros. There's two key words here to understanding this section. The first is the Greek heteros, H-E-T-E-R-O-S, and the second is alos, A-L-L-O-S. And heteros means diff- uh, a different kind, and alos means the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind, like heterosexual. Same kind, homo sapien, different kind, male and female. Halos is of the same kind. So they have deserted the gospel for a different, a gospel of a different kind, which is not another, verse 7, which is not alas, another of the same kind. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ in the verb Therefore, pervert is metastrepho, meaning to change, to alter, or transform. So there are those who want to alter or transform the gospel of Christ. But even, he says, even if we are an angel from heaven preach, and there's our word, uangelizo again, even if we are an angel from heaven proclaim any other gospel or good news to you than what we have announced to you, let him be accursed. As we, and then he repeats that. He said, as I've said before, I say it again, if anyone proclaims or announces any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, received there is the, we run across this, and this is the same verb. This is paralambano. This is the same verb we have for reception in 
1 Corinthians 15, 1. Para Lombano. P-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-A-N-O. And it is not talking about individual belief, but it is talking about the group or the corporate acceptance of the orthodox gospel. It would be as if I came up here and said, you have accepted the gospel as a church. You Look at the doctrinal statement. You've got it squared away. I am not talking about individual reception of the gospel. I'm talking about the fact that doctrinally you have it in place. You, you've got it down. You understand. That's what you received. And see, what they were doing is as a group, they were departing from that. They were changing their doctrinal statement and going over into a, into a work salvation. Verse 11, skip over verse verse 10, verse 11, he says, But I make known to you, there's the same word we have over in 1 Corinthians 15, norizo. I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was proclaimed by me, same word, the gospel, accusative case, uangeliop, which was preached, uangelizo, which was uh, proclaimed by me, is not according to man. So here we see that that in a parallel passage, what we're going to find out is that this concept of receiving the gospel, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15.1, is not talking about individual reception, but he's talking about the fact that you as a body of believers accepted the orthodox truth at one point. And then he goes on to say, and it's in that that you stand. And that isn't this talking about positional truth, but that's where we start seeing the, the real impact here. See, in which you stand is not, is not positional, it's experiential. It's like stand firm in the gospel. There, there, there's various mandates in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 5.12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You're already a believer. You're already positionally in it. But when it's an imperative, it means that you need to apply the principles and that's why we have to spend time analyzing the gospel over and over again is to understand grace so we can understand forgiveness and impersonal love and love for God. And all of that all flows out of our understanding of grace. The, the more you take time to think about the gospel and to, to analyze what it, what it means in terms of your life, in terms of your own disobedience to God, your own rebelliousness, antagonism, obnoxiousness to God, the more you come to understand what grace is, the more you become grace-oriented, and that impacts all the other, all the relationships in your life and enables you to handle all the problems you face in life that are related to people. But if you don't understand the gospel fully, then you're always going to have problems dealing with these other things. So that's why we keep going over it and over it and over it. We'll come back next time tie it together and get into the second verse with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word this morning to come to a greater understanding of the gospel and its implications. We pray that you would help us to further understand these things as they apply to our own life. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that both sure and certain. 
All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would drive home the truths that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.